This is a marketing communication. Please refer to the key information document or KID before making any final investment decisions. Investing involves risk. The value of an investment and the income from it may fall as well as rise and investors might not get back the full amount invested. Past performance does not predict future returns. The mention of any particular security or strategy should not be considered as a recommendation. For further information on the Allianz Technology Trust, please go to www.allianztechnologytrust.com. Hello and welcome to Silicon Valley Bite Size, an update on the tech sector from the Allianz Technology Trust. I'm Cherry Reynard. For our latest episode of Bite Size, we're going to focus in on a single issue, geopolitics. Technology is a global sector and is inevitably affected by changes in the relationships between countries. We thought it was an apt moment to look at this area because today some of those relationships look uniquely fragile. Uh, war in Europe and a significant deterioration in US-China relations. We've seen a destabilization in global trade. Here to discuss this with me is Mike Seidenberg, manager on the Trust. Welcome, Mike. Nice to see you. Um, Mike, let's start with a look at why geopolitics matters. You know, for example, does it affect companies' ability to trade across borders, to source cheap manufacturing, or why is it so important? Yeah, you know, it, it's super important as you think about the world we live in and the complexity of the supply chains, whether that's manufacturing, sourcing, um, you know, whatever realm of getting that good or service, even, for example, in software, you know, code being written in other countries that's be, that is then compiled in the U.S. to be distributed, um, you know, uh, by, the, by, the, by the companies. We're living in a world where it is truly global. Um, and, you know, that increases the risk for all these com- companies, um, you know, and we really saw that really come to fruition during the pandemic, where we saw supply chain severely disrupted. Um, and we saw, you know, long waits for things like automobiles, for things like washer and dryers. I mean, items that everybody that's listening to this podcast, just assume you can go out and procure. Um, so I think that it really brought a realization uh, to the consumer and to businesses, just how global their supply chains are. And I, I'd say this is a phenomenon that's been in existence, you know, for the last, you know, 25 plus years, it's just more and more relevant given, you know, we have amazing technologies that enable things like, you know, being able to digitize an item and send it overseas overnight to have it verified, you know, for a car loan, things like that. I I just happened to talk, I run into somebody who did that as a living and I was fascinated um, kind of how they did their business globally. But yeah, we are living in a world where, you know, supply chains are, are geared to be the most efficient and cost effective, yet they are global in nature. I mean, do you think that's particularly true for technology? I mean, has, have you had these sort of almost pockets of expertise? I, I don't know whether that's true or not, but um, you, you sort of feel there are kind of hubs of, you know, areas where different, that different countries are good at different things. Yeah, I mean, for sure, if, if, you, if you think about just, you know, semiconductor production, right, and you think about Taiwan and just 
being on the leading edge in, in that ecosystem there that exists that allow companies to go and have chips designed and produced. You know, many a country have tried to replicate what Taiwan has, um, uh, and they've, they've, they've failed miserably. That includes, you know, the Chinese have tried. Uh, we had a huge conglomerate in the Middle East that tried. So, you know, there is an element of expertise. And, and if you speak with a knowledge, uh, someone who's very knowledgeable about the Taiwan Semiconductor um, kind of ecosystem, they'll tell you it's more than just the production by a large company like TSMC. It is really about the ecosystem that exists around that particular um, that particular production or that manufacturing process. So, you know, I think that to your question, there are hubs. I mean, India had, had been a hub for a long time uh, with respect to um, you know, software coding um, and, and some you know, other services. Um, and then you have the emergence of, you know, a country which unfortunately, you know, is in a war right now. You know, Ukraine has just amazing technical talent. Um, and you saw companies kind of emerge out of the Ukraine that really, you know, solve uh, production challenges for things like the internet and things like search. Um, so I, I think it kind of varies, um, you know, depending on what the problem is, where that problem is solved. And there'll be new ones. You know, you hear people talk about Vietnam a lot right now. And then obviously, you know, it goes without saying the major, you know, the major industrialized countries are, are obviously extremely good at solving many of these problems. You know, there's just a cost associated with it, right? I mean, it's just more expensive to get stuff done in the UK than it is probably, you know, in Estonia, right? Okay, that's interesting. So, you know, in terms of assessing whether this is a, a big problem for the technology sector, actually, it's, it's a problem with, with solutions. They just, they just come at a price. Yeah, and I think that, remember, I mean, I don't think technology is unique in this aspect. You know, if you think about auto, automobile manufacturing and you know, many of the cars in the U.S., the sub-assemblies are done in Mexico and brought across the border for final production in places like South Carolina. Um, you know, the same, the same I, I heard a great stat that, you know, one of the reasons why Audi was having challenges um, with their production was so much of so many of the sub so many of the systems and, and manufacturing were done in the Ukraine. So I mean, we're really living in a global world um, and therefore any disruption to that balance and that ability to have those goods efficiently, you know, both, you know, manufactured and distributed. That's a real challenge. And I think governments are realizing that. I mean, we've had some really interesting, you know, I, mean, I think we're going to talk about it later on. But, you know, if you take a look at some of the acts that have been passed in the United States, which is really saying, saying to ourselves, look, how dependent do we want to be um, as a country on a particular region? So, um, it, it, you know, I, I, I totally agree with the statement. Um, but I think it's I don't think I don't think we're going back to domestic only production. It's too expensive. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, obviously, China has uh, been in the kind of forefront of these tensions and, and has also, you know, been a, a huge sort of centre of tech innovation as well. I mean, I know you've invested in China in the past. Do you have any holdings there now? Yeah, we have a couple of small holdings. We are well under our benchmark um, for the fund. You know, you're correct. At times, you know, my predecessor, um, it was very early in China 
and we had you know large large uh, large amount of our investment in there. You know, you know we were very um, very uh, good at getting out of China prior to the current regime, uh, which really helped us. Look, I feel like you know, and I and I think it changes daily. There were times late last year where I really felt like the relationship between the U.S. and China was slightly improving. I don't feel as confident about it today. I think that's somewhat reflected in our position holding sizes, our position holding size that we have. Um, you know, uh, if if I think about just the opportunity set, you know, the, there are some really good companies there. They're particularly cheap, but, and it's a big but, you have to understand the playing field uh, for your investors to invest in countries. And, you know, waking up one morning and seeing an industry basically become obsolete because the government decides it doesn't want that industry. And we've seen that a number of times in China. There is a risk associated with investing there that's very difficult to handicap. Therefore, you know, you need valuation, you need a great fundamental business, and you need some understanding of kind of what does that landscape look like? Are things getting hotter or things thawing um, is the kind of the way I think about it. I mean, obviously, there are there are companies that are directly listed in China, but there are also companies that uh, have manufacturing in China or big markets in China, distribute in China. I mean, are, are you seeing a lot of impact there as well? We're seeing an impact in that, you know, there is a conscious effort given the, you know, given the relationship of the United States and China to diversify away from China as you know, you, what I call kind of dual sourcing, triple sourcing, making sure that if you're if you're a business and you're in, in your manufacturing in China, looking for other locations, primarily because you want to have the ability to have those goods and services get to your customers from another geo from another geography. If things turn, you know, if things you know get worse, right? I mean, you know, uh, you know, the pawns in the game. Uh, from for you know in this particular situation are the companies right uh, they are the ones that you know are that they are the pieces on the chessboard that the, that the governments are moving around so yeah I mean I think there's a real there's a real concerted effort by most companies to think about you know if you were sole sourcing a particular aspect of your business in China of, of really looking elsewhere or looking you know, not elsewhere as in leaving looking elsewhere as in where else can we go? in the event things get worse and then maybe you allocate some of that production uh to a country like vietnam uh for example um so you know it, it's definitely top of mind with people yeah yeah absolutely um i wonder if we could also look at a couple of sectors that are particularly influenced by geopolitics i mean one of the obvious ones has to be cybersecurity, which you now feel sort of almost arguably falls into the category of defense spending given um that you know a lot of the current tensions um sort of manifest themselves in in um sort of cyber warfare um i wonder if you can talk a bit about how cybersecurities are helping to manage those international threats you know the role role they play sure you know i mean first of all if you think about cybersecurity in the world we live in you know it is not an optional spend right it is a line item on an it budget that is going to get dollars and continue to grow whether the economy is good or bad because of what you just alluded to, just the, the just the relative importance um, as it increases. You know, 
the approach that most organizations take and continue to take is really a layered approach, right? Think of it as a, you know, uh, we have a great slide in our, our cyber fund, but we basically showing a castle and a moat and towers. And, you know, imagine, if you will, lots of layers of security, understanding that most organizations will be breached. And the idea is to mitigate that breach and to make sure it causes as little damage as possible. Therefore, you go to, if you're a, if you're, if I'm a chief information officer or chief security officer, I go, I implement a layered approach. And the good thing is, is there, these companies are incredibly clever with respect to creating solutions at those various layers. Um, and therefore, you know, in a lot of the DNA of the cybersecurity is coming out of the likes of, of governments, right? Whether it's people that have worked in, you know, for the Israeli Defense Organization and then are out in the private sector, or people that have, had worked at, you know, in the United States and, and in Europe, various organizations that really, you know, really kind of focus on security and then they leave and then they start companies. Um, but this is an increasingly important area. And, and the interesting thing is, you know, we, and, you know, we just had a uh, Palo Alto Networks reported last night, uh, current holding in the fund, and they had just a really good quarter. They saw really good growth um, despite a tough macro environment, and it really speaks to the to the importance of this sector. Um, look, I don't think any company can guarantee that they won't be breached, right? These are nation states that view this as a competitive um, aspect of their country in order to, whether it's steal trade secrets, um, obtain information, whatever that is. Therefore, the amount of dollars being invested in you know, to attack your adversaries is huge. It's not four hackers in a room trying to break into the corner store. Um, uh, so I think that you know, I think that the cybersecurity the cybersecurity companies are doing a great job. I think you'll see continued innovation there, primarily because there's real investment behind solving this uh, solving this problem, and and it's an important and. And, you know, there is a duration of the problem that exists, you know, well beyond, you know, probably me and you on this, you know, in our professional lives, right? This is something that, you know, our lives are more digital and that's great. Our lives are more vulnerable because they're more digital. And that's, a, you know, that's a balancing act um, and the cybersecurity has really helped to mitigate um, uh, the challenges associated with living in a digital world. Interesting. So much more of a kind of defensive rather than a cyclical play now. I mean, yeah. I think that, you know, I think it's I think the correct word is secular in that yeah. it is an area of spend. And let me be really clear. You know, if there's a you know, massive global recession, the cybersecurity companies will feel it. You know, our premise is they feel it less than other companies, um, given just how important it is, you know, um, you know, anecdotally. You know, I run into CEOs of businesses and I jokingly say, you know, oh, I'm going to cut, are you cutting your cyber business, uh, budget this year? And they all just laugh and they're like, that'll be the last budget that'll be cut from our IT budget. So I, mean, I really think this is one of those sectors that, you know, really has this kind of secular spin, you know, uh, and it's not very often that I say this. I mean, you can look down the road, road five, 10 years and people are going to continue to spend here. And I think that's, that's that that situation is, less apparent with other aspects of technology. Absolutely. I mean, another big area, obviously, is semiconductors. Um, so, and there, there's really, you're really seeing a lot of protectionism 
um, from individual companies, you know, laws being passed and that sort of thing. In in the US, there's been the Chip and Science Act. Yeah. Um, I mean, can you talk a bit about the background to that and why semiconductors have been a particular area of this protectionism? Yeah, well, you know, if you think about, you know, what semiconductors mean to all of us on this podcast, you know, they're the lifeblood of a lot of the things you inter interact with, you know, on a daily basis. I mean, you know, good luck, you know, good luck, you know, the, the, the notion of trying to fix your car, um, like I had growing up and I worked at, you know, in, in a garage, um, so I was around mechanics, you know, that, that notion of do it yourself has really gone by the wayside, um, you know, because the amount of content, the, the, the amount of semiconductor content that is that, that is in these items just continues to increase. And and by the way, it's not just cars, it's blenders, it's ovens, it's, you know, you name it, semiconductor content is increasing. And therefore, I think that what 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 governments are realizing is, you know, to be so dependent on a certain geography that is in uh, a neighborhood where there the adversary is really, really powerful. And we're talking about Taiwan here uh, for the most part on the leading edge aspect to it. You know, I think governments are saying, look, we support Taiwan and, and, and what they're doing. And we want to have some capacity ourselves because what if, you know, what if something terrible happens, you know, a storm, a, a political event in Taiwan and we can't get these products out. And, you know, I think that that, that is a realization um, that many governments, the United States government being, you know, kind of in, in the leading leading forefront there with the with the chips and with the chip and science act, you know, they're basically saying, look, we got to bring some of this home. We need to manufacture uh, more of these products you know, on our home turf. And I don't think it's not for xeno xenophobic reasons at all. I think it's for diversification reasons. Um, you know, it's hundred percent diversification related. Um, and, and so we're seeing that. Look, I think that, you know, here again, you know, for a lot of uh, businesses, the pandemic really was a wake up call. Right. I think it was a wake up call for a lot of business saying, you know, we need to think about uh, how do we how do we how, how do we do things differently and, and protect ourselves to make sure we can get these products and goods to to our customers. So I think you're seeing things like the chip, you know, chip and science. Act. In spite of that kind of growing importance semiconductors don't seem to have done all that well I mean in, in share price performance over the past um kind of 12 months or so I mean I know it's been a tough time for this tech sector generally but you know you would have thought with that sort of secular growth story behind them that there'd be more sort of impetus in the market I mean well what explains that um sort of dichotomy yeah, you know, so listen, you know, obviously the amount, or not obviously, the amount of content continues to increase. Uh, and we've talked about that. And we're seeing things like electronic vehicles, hybrid, et cetera, et cetera, you know, of data, you know, artificial intelligence, data center. And those are all huge consumers of semiconductor chips. You know, having said that, these are fairly cyclical, uh, fairly cyclical companies. And there's an aspect to them, um, especially in more the general semiconductors, they kind of follow, they kind of track the economy. So, when things are tougher, they don't, you know, they end up with uh, inventory and they end up, you know, losing money and using working capital in some cases. And when things are better, you know, they really, uh, they really profit from it. You know, one thing we've really thought about in the trust is really thinking about, 
you know, positioning ourselves, you know, more towards the specialization aspect to it, right? Really looking for these companies that, that are really focused on things like electronic vehicles, things like data centers, artificial intelligence, et cetera, et cetera. And by the way, we have not, you know, we've suffered as well. Um, but I have, but my belief is as we come out of this kind of doldrums for semi, you will see the more specialized companies at the margin do better than some of the general semiconductors, uh, general semiconductor companies. But, you know, it's a great sector. It happens to be, you know, pretty cheap. Um, and, you know, to, as you alluded to, the long-term drivers are definitely there. Um, but I think, you know, like most things in, in the investment world, you have to find the companies that are really executing well, the companies that really have, you know, the, the right types of, you know, kind of order books going into the going into the end markets that really matter. And, and you know, and that's our job. And I have a great team of people I work with um, that we really spend lots of time talking about these things. So hopefully, you know, based on our current positioning, we'll be able to monetize the recovery of this industry over the next couple of years. Okay, great. And the final thing I wanted to talk about was supercomputers. Now, there's, yeah. there's been almost this kind of modern day space race, you know, who can build the biggest supercomputer? Um, I wonder if you can talk about why they're important. I mean, sure. I'm assuming it's data and I'm assuming it's AI, but um, talk me through it. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. It's something that, you know, it's funny. I was around a young, um, a young soon-to-be freshman college student who was majoring in artificial intelligence and business. He's going to the University of Southern California. Um, and it was really fascinating talking to this young, young gentleman um, just about artificial intelligence and, and why supercomputers matter so much. Um, and look, what, what it really boils down to is this notion of parallel processing, being able to, to look at multiple workloads in a single work unit and to execute on that, which in turn, you know, improve the algorithm, which in turn improve the AI aspect. Um, so, you know, you, you will continue to see companies really utilize these products because, you know, we're just talking about just, it's hard to fathom the workloads that are required in artificial intelligence. Um, and therefore, it's really important um, that, 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 that companies continue to not only produce them, but, you know, the consumers or the companies that are trying to solve these difficult problems are the natural buyers of these products. And I mean, obviously, there's a consumer use, but presumably there's a government use as well. Sure. You know, I mean, it's the same. Yeah. If you think about it, like, you know, look, it's, it's different workloads, right? But it's the same notion of, of you know, massive, massive amounts of data and looking at looking at, you know, workloads in parallel in order to get the output and look in the government's case it could be things around you know whatever uh, you know defense right or or health care or stuff along with those lines um uh and in you know google's case it could be you know improving you know the results of search or you know visual search so you know the underlying problem or the underlying equation, because it's funny enough, it's all really, ba it all is all based on math when you start reading about it. Um, and I've done a decent amount of reading just about neural networks and, 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 and how they kind of led into um, artificial intelligence. It's really about, you know, looking at expected versus um, expected values versus actual values and trying to close those gaps 
Um, and by the way, you know, don't ask me uh, how they, you know, there's, there's a lot of math I don't understand, but I understand the premise as to why it's so important to look at these workloads in parallel. Okay, I won't ask you about that. <laughs> and, you know, in terms of who is leading the way, is it is it really all about who's got the biggest supercomputer or is it how you're interpreting the data from it and, and the analytics behind it? Yeah, I think it's less about, you know, I think the good analogy there is you can have the best race car engine in the world. And if the driver isn't a good driver, it really is not going to, you're not winning a Formula One race, right? It's really about a combination of both. So, I mean, you know, not surprisingly, you know, first world countries like, you know, the UK, the United States that have really heavy research oriented computer science departments, right? You know, just, you know, and those, and, and, and the birth of those go back to, you know, go back, you know, whatever, 80 years, right? When they were solving, you know, problems, you know, that, you know, to help kind of solve, you know, challenges with respect to, you know, world wars, right? If you really kind of search as to where computers were really used initially, um, it really boils down to stuff like that. Um, uh, but, you know, I think that, you know, I think that, 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 the, that the countries that will lead will have excellent research institutions, which breed these young, you know, engineers um, that go out and really apply those theories in practice um, to the, you know, to the, to the real world, right? And that's why we go back to, you know, when we talk about technology huh, or centers of excellence in, you know, in, in places, it's why cities like London, San Francisco, you know, they, they constantly, you know, boil up to the top. Not that you have to have all your employees there, but they really do generate, the, you know, a very unique caliber. And by the way, they're not the only ones, but you know what I'm saying here, which is, you know, there's really this triumphant of university, you know, access to capital, you know, kind of good, you know, operational employees that really allow these companies to thrive, right? And, and to, to emerge and to solve these difficult problems. Great. We'll wrap up there. Thank you so much, Mike. I thought that was really interesting. Great chatting with you today, Jerry. Um, if you have any questions on the trust, please do go to the website, www.allianstechnologytrust.com or contact one of the sales team. Um, thank you all for listening. Thank you.